0: welcome to the center ranch church weekly podcast we believe that faith comes by hearing the word of god thanks so much for checking out the podcast here's this week's message Well, we've been in this series for, I think this is week five now, and I always like to take a couple of minutes at the beginning of a message and review, because there's maybe people that haven't been with us I want to give them some background, catch them up a little bit on what we've been talking about. But also, repetition is a great way to learn things. So some things you hear over and over and over, and you think we've already heard that part, but it's it's getting it, getting it in our hearts. So not only have you... I'm familiar with it. I wanna get some of these things to where you, you can't forget it, even if, if you've tried. But when sometimes we, you get to a point in the series like this and we've covered so much ground, we've talked about so many different things, we, you know, it's hard to really do a good job reviewing. So we're gonna wrap this series up today, but let me take a couple of minutes and try to highlight some of the things that we've talked about so far. We've been using the story in Genesis chapter three as a launching point, the story where Adam and Eve sinned, they realize they're naked, they make clothing out of fig leaves, hear God coming, says that they got afraid and they hid. God calls for them. They finally come out and they say, listen, here's what happened. We heard you coming. And because of our nakedness, because we're naked, we hid from you. We were afraid and we hid from you. And God asks the question, who told you that you're naked? And that's what we've been talking about. The way that you see yourself, the way you think of you, the way you view your situation, what is the source of it? What, What caused them to feel the emotions of fear and anxiety? What caused them to see themselves as being naked? Even though we know because they, they clothe themselves with fig leaves, that that wasn't even their case, their, their, their situation. The way they saw themselves affected every area of their life. That they allowed something, they allowed some way of thinking to move a detail of their life, something that had happened, something that used to describe them, to become the overarching identity. And they're making decisions on what they did and what they didn't do, what they were feeling, the way that they related to God, whether they pursued Him or avoided Him. All of that was stemming from how they saw themselves. And it's the same thing in your life and in my life. The things that you do, don't do, the emotions that you feel, the way you relate to God, it's going to come back to how how you see yourself, your view of you. So it's important to know where you're getting those feelings, where you're getting the way that you see you, your identity, how you think of your situation. Is it something you were just raised in that environment, something you were told, or something you found in the Word of God? Does it line up with how God describes you? Because it's going to affect everything, everything about you. We've talked about how the mind is a creative force how a person conceives things in their mind similar to the way a woman conceives things in her womb. And you can't deliver fruit in your life until you first conceive it in your mind. We talked about how if you want to deliver in your life God kind of fruit, then you've got to impregnate yourself with God's kind of seed. We looked at Romans chapter eight as an example because in that chapter, he asks a series of questions all based on Truth from God's word, just real simple things from the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, If God is for us, then who can be against us? If you really get yourself. So that's how you see you is that God is for me. He's on my side, working to see me advance and move higher, moving to see me succeed. Then you're not going to care if anyone is against you. It's going to provide such a confidence and boldness in your life. Most of us can answer that question. If God is for us, who can be against us? I, I know nobody, but it really doesn't provide much impact because it's just something we're familiar with. And we haven't really gotten pregnant with that truth till it becomes the way that we see ourselves. He continues He's asking questions. The next verse, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he also with him not freely give us all things? He asks another question. Who is it who condemns if it's God who justifies? He's asked this series of questions. What can separate us from the love of God? Simple truths from the word of God that if you really, really get it, there's going to be a natural fruit There's born out in your life a confidence, a boldness, a peace, a joy, a knowing where you, you stand with God. Last week we talked about how your mind has the ability to limit what is otherwise unlimited. We looked at the story in 2 Kings chapter 4 of the widow filling the, the vessels with oil. That oil was unlimited. It would still be flowing today if she had enough vessels or if there was a vessel large enough. The only thing that placed a limit on what was unlimited was the size of the vessel that she was pouring it into. God wants to fill you with his spirit, has filled you with his spirit. God's spirit is unlimited. What places a limit on it is you and I and our mindsets. The Israelites in the wilderness says they, they limited the Holy One of Israel, how do they limit God? He's unlimited by what they focus their, their mind on. This is such an important thing for us to get and to apply to our lives. You know, some people reach a plateau in their walk with God when they focus only on what we classically think as spiritual focuses, reading God's word, time and prayer, fasting, and those are all wonderful things. Those are great disciplines. We need to do those things. But sometimes people will reach like a, a dog at the end of a chain. They'll advance so far, but can't seem to move beyond that. They'll rise so high and hit like a lid. They'll plateau and won't be able to really get where they, they want to go because they haven't addressed another important area, your thought life and how you see you. And the Bible says in Romans 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our our mind. That's where transformation takes place. So if you don't don't renew your mind, change the way you think, there's a, a very low limit to the actual transformation that can take place. And even though you're reading God's word, which is a good thing, even though you're praying, which is a good thing, if you are still thinking of yourself out of line with the word of God, you've placed a limit on how high you can rise. In fact, Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. So even though you might have truth that you read every morning, if your mind is telling you that you're still worthless and God's angry with you or you're not as good as him and you'll never measure up up to her, you can't do the things that you feel like God's called you to do, you've got a house divided against itself. So even though one part is really good, the other side is garbage. And until you get that lined up and healthy and strong, you cannot stand the way God wants you to stand. So what we've said in this series that we're not just talking positive thinking like new age, self-help. It's just, it's just more pleasant to think nice things about you than it is to think bad things, which that's true. It is more pleasant, but it's so much more significant than that because the way you relate to God, the emotions that you feel, the, the things that you do or don't do are all gonna come back To that, And God's looking to raise up men and women of God, not to constantly be wrestling with where they stand with God, not to constantly be wrestling with thoughts of inferiority, but to get that stuff settled so they can go on and do the things that God's called them to do. You know, I I really feel like we're getting ready to step into a season where there is a, a more clear distinction between the people who serve God and those who do not we we had a time of prayer Wednesday night where I felt like God confirmed that by different things that he was speaking to us. You know, I'm I'm not a great gardener, I like to piddle around and, and have a little backyard garden. But there are some people that are very well-trained in the seeds they plant and cultivating them and all of those kinds of things. But when I plant a seed, I've also got to put something in the ground, some kind of label to remind me what I planted. Because when it starts coming up, my eye isn't trained well enough that I can identify, okay, that's, that's a bean sprout. Okay, that's a pepper plant. That's a tomato. It, it just all looks like green stuff coming out of the ground to my untrained eye. I've got to be careful when I weed because you know weeds are coming up, dandelions are coming up, whatever. I don't know any other names of weeds. Those are coming up. The vegetables are coming up. It all just looks like stuff coming up out of the ground, right? But the closer it gets to harvest time, the more obvious that distinction becomes. That maybe early on, I can't tell the difference between corn, cucumbers, and dandelions, but when it's time for that harvest, that it becomes very, very obvious what is what. And I believe the same thing is happening as we get closer to harvest time, that distinction grows more and more obvious. God wants to put a clear separation between people who have devoted their hearts and lives to him and those, those who haven't. And even my, my garden analogy, aside, I believe that you can see that in the word of God. The Israelites in Egypt is an example of that. There may have been a time When the Israelites were first living in Egypt, it was hard to tell who's who because everyone's just kind of living together. You might have had to ask people, "Hey, what's your nationality? What's your background?" Actually, I'm you know second generation Israelite, or you know actually I'm a native. I'm an Egyptian. Everyone's just kind of milling around together. But the closer it got to the time where God was going to extract His people from that place and move them to the Promised Land, the more obvious that distinction became. Where there was no doubt who were the children of God and who we're not and I believe we're we're getting ready to see a clear and clear distinction. I want to make sure you and I aren't, aren't vacillating in our minds, tossed to and fro depending on the last person to say something rude or something encouraging but we're grounded in the word of God. We know who we are and we're free to move forward doing the things God's called us to do and having our minds lined up, seeing ourselves appropriately from the mirror of God's word is such a key part of that. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Start reading in verse three. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare Are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So, in these verses we're gonna look at from this chapter, Paul is using a lot of military terms, talking about warfare and weapons and all all those kinds of things. And he says, the weapons of our, our warfare, which that word warfare, where it's used there, can be translated as our assignment, our mission, our expedition our campaign, he's talking about the weapons, the weapons for our campaign that we're on, the mission that we're on. And for some of us, that might be a a huge revelation to think about just this morning, to know you are on a campaign. You are on an assignment that there is a battle going on and there's a way that we need to think of ourselves that acknowledges you're not just here to hang out, to make life comfortable, to enjoy the things of this life. There's nothing wrong with that. But first has to come the assignment and the mission that God has placed us on, that there is a battle going on, that you have an enemy. That's looking to destroy you, to hurt you, to harm you, to steal, kill, and destroy. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober what? Be sober-minded. So it comes back to our mind. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That you have an enemy that's looking to destroy you, destroy your family, destroy your potential, rob you of hopes and dreams and the things that God wants to do in you and for you. And through, you have an enemy. You need to be aware of it and think of yourself as a soldier. Like Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Talked about enduring suffering like a good soldier and how a soldier doesn't get entangled with the affairs of life, why? So that he can be most pleasing to the one who enlisted him. You and I've got to think of ourselves in that terms. One, because someone's gonna try to destroy you if you aren't on guard for it, but also because there's a mission for us to carry out. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, there's a kingdom that we're supposed to be pursuing and working to establish in advance above everything else we're to do. To seek first his kingdom and his, his righteousness. The weapons of our warfare. There's a warfare going on. You and I are on a campaign. On an assignment. It says the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal but they're mighty in God, they're not natural, they're not fleshly weapons, which means if you walk in the flesh, if you're walking according to the natural, then you're also unarmed and you're vulnerable to the attack of the enemy, because the the weapons that we have for fighting are in that realm. Let's read again, verse four. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If we're engaged in a battle, and we are, and we have an enemy, and we do, then it is important for us to have understanding of, of where this battle is going to be taking place. I know some people in our church are history buffs. We have some people in our church family that are very knowledgeable about the Civil War. We have some people that have done Civil War reenactments. So if I started talking and using, using terms like Little Round Top and Seminary Ridge in Cemetery Hill, and just throwing those kinds of terms around. If you're familiar at all with it, you would you would know I'm speaking about the the battlefield in Gettysburg, and different different places where significant things happened in that battlefield. You you would just know by the terminology that I'm using about the specific battlefield I'm talking about. And something similar is happening in the verses we just read. He's talking about warfare, and we can pick up by the terminology, the words that he's using, what kind of battlefield, where the this battle is taking place. So he talks about pulling down strongholds, but he's talking about reasoning, pulling down reasons, pulling down arguments, can be translated as thoughts or imaginations. He's talking about things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. He's talking about taking thoughts captive. So he starts using that kind of terminology. You know that your mind plays a significant part in the way that spiritual warfare plays itself plays itself out. So he says, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and taking thoughts captive. That the enemy knows how important your mind is because if he can control someone's mind, he can control their behavior, he can control the emotions that they feel, and he can control the way that they relate to God. So we'll kind of work our way backwards through this. He talks about taking thoughts captive. When you take someone captive... They're no longer free. They're no longer able to do whatever they want to do. When you take someone captive, there are restraints put on them. They lose lose their freedom. They have to do as as they are told. And again, he's talking about you and I taking our thoughts captive. So our thoughts don't just do whatever they want. They lose their freedom. When someone is taken captive, there has to be a captor that takes them captive. A captive is put under guard, which is what we talked about before in Proverbs chapter four. To guard your heart, the center of thought, to guard it above everything else because out of it flow the issues of life. So it's the same thing, to put your thoughts under guard, to take them captive. It's important that you and I take our thoughts captive to put them under guard. Now imagine if you were given an assignment to go and to inspect a prison and to see if they're doing a good job. Go and check it out, see if the guys are running the prison effectively, efficiently. They give you an address and you drive to where this prison is. And when you pull up, you're a little bit confused because it's just like a big open field. There's a bunch of guys out in the middle of the field. You come to the conclusion, okay, those are the prisoners and around the edge of the field, there's a few guards thinking, what in the world is going on here? So you walk over to one of the guards, start start asking some questions, but you notice he's just on his phone. He's he's playing gummy drop or candy crush or just kind of staring at his phone, not really responsive to your questions. And you you look back at the field and you do a double take because it seems like there's less prisoners in the field than there were when you first pulled up. You're kind of looking around and sure enough, you see every once in a while a few prisoners are sneaking off into the tree, into the tree line you try to bring it to their attention, but they're working on a high score so they don't really wanna be bothered with what's going on with the prisoners. If you've pulled up and you saw that kind of thing going on, you would know these these guards aren't really very serious about keeping keeping guard or keeping these prisoners captive because if you pull up to a prison, what you expect if they're serious is that there's a tower, there's someone on, on lookout, there's fences with barbed wire, there's there's a lot of locks and, and walls, there's cameras and checks points. There's alarms that go off if something is violated. There's backup plans. If someone is really, is really serious about keeping those people as captive, right? But for some of us, if we're being honest, the instruction that we're given to God's word, given from God's word, to take your thoughts captive, that we're more like that first group of guards that are just busy doing other things, letting our thoughts just run willy-nilly and do whatever, do whatever they want. We don't keep a close guard. We don't keep control. We aren't really dictating what the they do and what they don't do. We're not really keeping guard over them. And that's where this problem starts that he's addressing here in this passage, where a stronghold is eventually built. It starts by someone refusing to take their thoughts captive. Take your thoughts captive. If you don't take a thought captive, then it starts to use imaginations, reasoning. says pulling down Every reasoning or every argument that would exalt itself or raise itself up literally to build itself, to build itself. And if it successfully builds, what it's building is a stronghold or a fortress. Now, if you grew up in church, you've been in church most of your life, and you hear the term stronghold, you just instantly think of some kind of spiritual terminology. But he's using military terminology, he's talking about a fortress a base of operation. And so we can see a a progression or really a digression of how a fortress is built that someone doesn't take their thoughts captive. Those thoughts start to, to build a base of operation until they have an actual fortress that has been established. Now, if we turn to Ephesians chapter four, you can see an example of this using anger as an example. This is being applied to anger, but we can see the same kind of thing happening. Let me read it to you. Ephesians chapter four, starting verse 26. It says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. So he's saying you need to do something. You need to control anger so that anger doesn't end up in a position where it's controlling you. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Well, he says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. It's not because there's some kind of crazy things that happens at, you know, during a sunset and you're, and you're angry. It's talking about putting a time limit that you need to deal quickly. If you find yourself thinking angry thoughts, feeling angry emotions, don't wait around because if you don't take those thoughts captive, they're going to start building something. They're going to start exalting themselves, start building a fortress. And if you let it get firmly established, anger is going to control you and you're going to fall in a sin of doing things based on the anger that you could have controlled, but you refuse to. And now it's built a stronghold in your life. Some of us know what that's like. You start to think a thought about what a jerk that guy is, how annoying that person at work is, how your spouse doesn't do enough around the house, how your parents just don't understand. You know how it is when you start to think a thought and gets the wheels spinning? You, you can end up just how, how that, thinking about how that person irritates you, what a bad driver they are, how they never help you out how they don't show you any respect. Your mind starts working. It starts coming up with other examples and building a case. It's an argument. It's reasoning and it, it's building. It's starting to exalt itself. You can get to a point where you actually, you've thought about it so much, now you're feeling the emotions and then you end up doing something, lashing out, taking steps. Now anger is controlling you when you, you should have dealt with it right away quickly. That's what he's telling us. That's the same pattern that happens in other areas of your life, just using anger as an example that you take thoughts captive, otherwise it begins to build something or it'll eventually build build a a fortress. It's just a base of operation. It's a military term where they can operate from. That's what he says. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry for anger gives a foothold, same kind of terminology, a place of operation to the devil. When When I was 12 years old, my family lived out in the country in this old farmhouse. It wasn't very nice, but I loved living there, out in the woods. We didn't live there very long, but when we lived there, there was another boy about my age that lived close by, and to me living there, it was like ideal. Me and this other boy, we we played in the woods all day, caught frogs and snakes and played in the creek, climbed trees and built forts. And it was just like a young boy's paradise living here. one day we were rummaging through this old shed and we found not one, but two old machetes. And for two 12-year-old boys that loved to play in the woods, to find, it was like God had smiled on us, like he specifically wanted us to have these it was like the greatest blessing in the world. Couldn't believe real machetes. So when we would walk through the woods, instead of just doing what you normally do and you know, following a, a normal path, We wanted to find the densest, thickest, most thorn-filled vines. I mean, the the more dense and and cluttered, the better, because we wanted to hack our, we want to put these machetes to use, just swinging them like wild and blazing, blazing trails. And once you blaze a trail like that, now you've got one and you can start traveling it unless you're a 12-year-old boy with a machete and then you're just you know, looking to, to cut down the whole woods and just keep on, keep on hacking. But when, when you blaze a trail, cut a trail like that, the more you travel it, the more established it becomes. You can start to, to cause the ground, not to even really grow anything because it's being trampled so often. Maybe you've seen a trail. You can tell a lot of people walk here or animals walk here or maybe even in your yard or something, there's a path that you take and you can see it started to wear the grass where you always cut over to the garage or you always go to fill the bird feeder or whatever it happens to be. And you start to wear a path until it's very clearly established and it just becomes natural to walk that way. Well, I was reading a book one time and it was talking about, it was a secular book, but it was talking about the way that our minds work And the way that your brain starts to make make connections, and it was talking about neurotransmitters and synapses firing and all kinds of stuff I, I didn't understand. But it was explaining how your brain starts to make connections, and those connections can grow stronger and stronger and stronger and affect our behavior. That you respond to something a certain way, you've made a connection. If you respond to it again, you've strengthened that connection. And you can can begin to have things in your life that happen. It's just almost like automatically, because it's happened so often, that connection has grown so strong. And in this book, they related it to what I was just talking about, where you travel through a yard or through the woods somewhere, and you start to, to create a path. You start to wear it thin, where it just becomes a natural way to go. Your brain functions that way that some of us have trails blazed in our mind that things happen. We don't even think about it. That's just the natural route. We use anger as another example that one time when you were young, something happened that you didn't like and you had a choice to make how you were going to respond to that situation. And you decided to respond with anger. You raised your voice. You threatened violence or revenge or something. You were angry. That's the way you responded. And then another time something happened that you didn't like. And you respond similarly. And you can get to a point where you've blazed that trail in your mind so that... You don't even think about it. Something happens that is unpleasing to you and you are in a rage. It's just a natural angry response. You haven't even thought about it. It's just happening. And some people can get to a point where they don't want to be that way anymore. They hate it when that happens, but the enemy takes advantage of the way that your mind works and fortifies strongholds in your life. There are people that hate the way that they act. I don't want to be angry. My kids do something wrong, and the next thing I know, I've lost my temper. I'm saying terrible things, and I'm throwing stuff, or I yell at my spouse, or I did this at work. I got in trouble with the, with the police because I lost my temper. I don't want to be this way. It's not the kind of dad. It's not the kind of man. It's not the kind of wife or mom I want to be, but I find myself responding. What's happened is you've, you've had this pattern in your life. The enemy has used it to form a stronghold in your mind. But in this passage of scripture that we're looking at, it's talking about weapons that we have been given from God that have the ability, they enable us to take thoughts captive they enable us when when something is trying to build and fortify itself in our lives to pull it down and stop it. And even if a fortress has been established, a military base in our minds spiritually where the enemy is operating from, these weapons have the ability to demolish them and completely annihilate them and get them cleared out of the way. That's the kind of weaponry that God has given us, amen. But it doesn't do much good if we don't know what those weapons are or how to use them. So what are the weapons that God has given us that are mighty in God for the demolishing of strongholds? That if you find yourself thinking of you in a certain way and you don't want to think of yourself as inferior, you don't want to think of yourself as less than, you know it's placed a a limit on what you can do and what you're willing to attempt and you want to change it, but you just can't seem to break free, God has given us weapons and one of them is found in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. Most of you are familiar with the passage. And Ephesians chapter six starts talking about something very similar. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual powers, principalities in the unseen world. And then it starts to give us the armor of God, different pieces of armor that we can put on ourselves, equip ourselves with. And most of it is protective in nature. It's a shield. It's a breastplate. It's a girdle or a belt. It's a helmet. But then there's one weapon that's mentioned. And it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That one of the mighty weapons God has given us to demolish strongholds. It's effective in pulling down arguments and reasoning. Taking thoughts captive is using. The Word of God. And the enemy knows how powerful the Word of God is in our lives. He knows that this is a weapon, so he fights you hard to fully engage with it and learn how to use it properly. Have you ever noticed that you can spend, you can just lose track of time reading other things, looking at other things? You, you can just lose yourself scrolling through Facebook reading stuff about people that you're not even sure how you got connected with them, but you're reading what they had for dinner or where they went on vacation, and you're fascinated. You can just keep on scrolling through Instagram, looking at stuff on Pinterest, reading sporting news and article after article, all kinds of random things. But when it comes to reading God's word, it's like there's a force keeping you that it's, it's hard to, you're too busy to spend time in God's word. And it's hard for you to spend time in God's word because you don't like to read all of those arguments that don't really apply to the other things. You've got plenty of time to do them. It's because there is a force trying to keep you from the word of God because it's a weapon that's mighty in God for demolishing what the enemy's trying to establish in your life. And the enemy knows. It's a weapon that he doesn't want you to be able to use. It's like a scene in the movie where the gun flies out of someone's hand, and now the fight's on. They're pulling each other's feet and scrambling across the floor, trying to get to the weapon or trying to keep the other person from getting to the weapon. That's the way the enemy fights you from engaging in the Word of God. Now, some of us have spent time in the Word of God and think, man, I I read God's Word on a regular basis. Some of us read it every day. But maybe you're not seeing the kind of results that we're talking about. Man, I, I, I read the Bible. I've got a Bible reading plan to prove it. But I, I can't see where it's demolished any strongholds in my life. I mean, I, I like it. I'm fond of it. I know it's important. But I'm not seeing the results that you're talking about. When it comes to engaging with God's word, reading it is good. But just reading it isn't what the Bible tells us to do with the Bible. The Bible doesn't say just spend 10 minutes and read a chapter every day. It doesn't tell us to do that. So some people will read it, and it's good. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad to do that. It's good to do that. It's just not enough to do that. So some people don't read it. They need to. Some people do read it, and that's good, but there's more they need to do. Some people memorize it, and that's good. We're supposed to do that. But, you know, there's another level that the Bible tells us to engage with the Word of God. Joshua chapter 1. Verse eight, talking about the Bible, it says, you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. He's talking about the word of God and he doesn't say read it every day. He doesn't even just say memorize it. What does he tell him to do? To meditate on it. When? When is he supposed to meditate? When is he supposed to have his mind applied to the word of God? Two times, daytime and nighttime, which pretty much sums up all the possible times. Turn your Bible to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one, starting in verse one, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, but whatever he does shall prosper. That there... There is a level of prospering and flourishing that is available to each one of us, but it comes directly as a result of, of not having a few a few favorite verses, not spending 10 minutes a day in the word of God, but having God's word on our mind all the time, to think about it continually, that you've always got a verse, a passage, a thought rolling around in your mind. Everything that we do, we've never separated ourselves from the word of God. We're meditating on it, thinking about it day and night. That's the level of engagement where God's word is a sword and destroys, destroys the work of the devil, pulls down arguments, demolishes strongholds, God's word is a sword, a stronger than a two-edged sword, the Bible says. It's, it's living and active. It's not just a nice thought to start your day. It's alive, it's supernatural. And if we keep it in our mind all the time, that's when we see those results. The things that the enemy has built for your harm can be torn down and new patterns of behavior and thinking can be established like a machete going through the woods, blazing, blazing new trails with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now now listen to chapter two, verse one. If we continue reading through the Psalms, chapter two, verse one, it says this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So now he's talking about imaginations. Why do people, why do people imagine, use their imaginations for vain things? A vain things means stuff that isn't fruitful. It doesn't help you. There's no profit from it. But the way they use their imagination, they've got nothing to show for. It, it doesn't do them any good. Now you know the way your imagination works. That if I wanted you to start imagining something, all I would need to do is sort of get the ball rolling, and you could pretty much take over, right? If I started saying, hey, imagine that your most favorite time to ever go to the beach. Remember what it was like. Remember walking and finding a spot to set up your blanket and all the other people and the sound of the waves and how hot the sand was and how you had to kind of like walk funny to you know get your feet down below the top layer you you, you would start thinking of all kinds of memories and pictures of who you were with and what snacks you brought and the the seagulls and all that you you would start imagining or if i said hey imagine christmas time imagine your favorite parts of christmas time we're, we're getting you know closer to that this year you you could start thinking of the cookies and where you're going to put the tree and the lights and you, you your imagination would start working and thinking of pictures. But a lot of times we use our imagination in a way that stirs up doubt and fear. If we get a piece of bad news or we see something in the newspaper, something happens to a loved one and our imagination starts running and it's, it's vain. There's nothing productive, nothing fruitful from it. Have you ever had a symptom? And as soon as you felt that symptom, maybe it's a pain in your body, a little scratchiness in your throat. You cough a couple of times and your imagination is off to the races, right? I know I've got COVID. I know that's, that's gotta be what it is. Just a matter of times and my lungs are filled with fluid. I'm on a ventilator. And I better go ahead and make sure I got my affairs in order because I'm out of here. I know it. Right? It turns out you just need a drink of water because your throat's dry. But your imagination has already like spun this whole scenario, and it's all negative. Or, or someone someone that you care for, a loved one, has got some health concerns, and you know that they're going in for testing, and your imagination starts working. Man, they're going to get the results of this test back. What, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to take care of them. What's life going to be like without them? How am I going to deal with this loss? You, you know what I'm talking about. The way that your imagination starts working, that, that's what he's... Why do people use their imagination for... A- A vain thing. They create these scenarios. They have nothing good to show for them. Now, here's what's interesting. That word in chapter 2, verse 1, it's translated imagine, is the same exact Hebrew word that's translated in the chapter before that we read. It's translated meditate. Same word. So there's a connection between meditating and the way that we use our imaginations. That the way you think of scenarios and play things out in your mind, the way you think about your future, what this year is going to be like, how your kids are going to grow up, what your marriage is going to be like, what what waits for you in retirement, what, what old age will be like. There's a connection between your imagination and meditation. So if we're thinking about God's word all of the time, we're thinking about it day and night, then when it comes to the way you use your imagination, God's word becomes like a a lens or a filter that you're thinking through, that you're running your imagination through. So when you feel that pain in your body or your loved one comes down with a symptom and they decide to run some tests, you're not playing worst case scenario and already writing out what you're going to say at their funeral because you're running your imagination through the word of God and you know that healing belongs to you because Jesus carried all of your sickness and all of your disease. So you're a Imagining A bright future where they get good reports back and life goes on sweeter than it ever was before. You know with long life, God will satisfy you and show you his salvation. So that's what you're anticipating. And everything you imagine is run through that filter and believing that good things are ahead for you and not bad things. Then when you see things on the news and you see what's going on in the world today and in the government, you're not digging a hole in your backyard to eat your last box of saltines and then die with your family. You're anticipating good things ahead head, that God is your provider and his hand is on you and you're not like everybody else, but you've got to run your imagination. Let it be the meditation of the word of God day and night. The way you think this afternoon is going to be, the way this week is going to go, that you're imagining it. Meditate on God's word day and night, night and day. Everything you think, everything you imagine, go ahead and dream about your future. Go ahead and imagine a vacation. Just do it through the filter of the word of God, because the way that you imagine is part of how we meditate on the Word of God. We're taking it and making sure the Word of God is like woven all through the story that's playing out in our minds. That's how the Word of God is something powerful that pulls down every fortress, everything the enemy would try to build, every negative way of seeing yourself, seeing your life, seeing your future. It destroys it and it paints a better picture. If the devil can use your imagination to stir up doubt and fear and destroy faith, then God God can use your imagination to build faith and destroy fear and clear it out of the way when you're anticipating nothing but good things because of the word of God. That God's word becomes something that's playing on your mind all the time. How can you think lowly of yourself when you're thinking God's word all the time? So you know you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're the apple of his eye. His banner over you is, how could you think God's angry with you? When you're thinking God's word, how could you think perverted, twisted thoughts when you're thinking God's word? Because you can't do both at the same time. One destroys the other. One will sweep the other out of the way. So if I'm thinking on God's word all the time, man, my, my mind is like a fountain of life. So he says you become like a tree planted by rivers of water. You bring forth fruit. Everything that you do prospers. Let me read to you from Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse five, it says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the mind of the the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now we use this verse at the beginning of the series to talk about the drastic difference, the difference between death and life. It all comes back to the way that we use our minds. But I used to think of being carnally minded, fleshly minded, is basically just thinking perverse, dirty, sinful things all the time. That if you're carnally minded, it means that you're thinking about nudie magazines and drugs and booze, mistreating people, stealing stuff. If you're thinking like that, you're carnally minded, which is true. But that, that's not all that carnally minded means. Carnally minded just means you're thinking according to the natural. That you're, you're sensual, that doesn't mean sexual, it means that you're just thinking according to the senses. You're just thinking about things you can smell and touch and taste, you're, you're limited to this dimension. And if you think that way, if you're just going according to what you can see and perceive in the natural, the, the result of that is death, you're carnally minded. You're just thinking about how to pay the bills, getting your kids to practice, what you're having for dinner that night, What's going on at work? Again, there's nothing wrong with thinking those things, but if that's the limit, then you're carnally minded and it becomes death. But if you're spiritually minded, if you get something in your mind that brings supernatural power, Jesus said, my words are spirit. The word, the word of God Again, it's not just information, there's a spiritual component, it is spiritual. So when I fill my mind with the Word of God, it keeps me, I can't be carnally minded and be thinking about the Word of God because by nature, I'm thinking spiritual spiritual thoughts. So when I begin to meditate on God's Word, when I apply it, when I'm using my imagination and weaving God's Word through it, it pulls me out of being carnally minded and into being spiritually minded. And when I'm spiritually minded, what's the result? It's life and peace, life and peace. the result. It's so important that you have, the, the way that Jesus thought is the way that you and I think. Amen. Think about it. It's so important that God didn't just give you the spirit of Jesus. He gave you the mind of Christ. So Think how important the mind is. Let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. It's that important. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we have the mind, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. His spirit, yes, powerful. But you also need the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. So one of the weapons to clear out the garbage the enemy's planted in your life, what he's tried to build up, cultivate to keep you small, a small vessel, keep you down on yourself, to limit your interaction with God, to limit what you're able to accomplish, to manipulate your emotions, to control your behavior. One of the weapons to clear all that out of the way is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But in Ephesians chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. He goes on, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer in supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So he's talking about warfare. Another weapon that we have is the ability to pray. That prayer is a weapon. The Bible also talks about another weapon we have that's able to demolish and destroy what the enemy would try to use in our lives to control us. The Bible says the anointing breaks the yoke, destroys it. Yoke is something you put on an animal to try to control where they go and where they don't go. The enemy wants to do that to you. But one of the weapons we have is the anointing to break the yoke. So in just a couple of minutes, if if you're here this morning, maybe there's some way that you've always thought of yourself, always thought of life. Again, your mind's a creative force. Signs follow those who believe. You've always thought, man, I guess just kind of the lock cut out for me. Life is going to be difficult. Life is going to be hard because of some decisions that I've made, because of the family that I come from. I guess this that, that, that's a stronghold. And he begins to, Create the very thing that you're thinking. God can destroy that and clean it out of the way. Use the word of God. Maybe you're here this morning. You'd like someone to stand with you. We use the weapon of prayer and the anointing to break that off of you this morning and send you out of here free, able to begin to establish, cut some new paths, begin to blaze some new trails where you think of yourself as free from sin, a son, a daughter of God, anointed, holy, set apart. You know, the Bible says that in in Romans chapter six when it comes to You being free from sin, reckon yourself dead to sin. You know what reckon means? The way you think, the way you think of you. When I think of me, I think of me free from sin. That's what the Bible tells me to do. And that's how you you end up producing that in your life. So in just a couple of moments, I'll give you that opportunity. If you'd like prayed for, anointed with oil, make sure that everything the enemy's tried to build, destroyed, completely free. Let me read one more passage of scripture. John chapter 13, verse three. In in John chapter 13, Jesus is getting ready to teach his disciples for the last time before he goes to the cross. So you can read John chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. Chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the things that they're going to face. He's talking about how they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm getting ready to go away. You don't understand these things. It's actually better that I go away because the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to be with you, your teacher and your counselor. He's given all this talk, and then he's going to be betrayed in the garden later that evening. The way that that evening starts, when Jesus starts to teach his disciples all these things, gets ready to go and be betrayed, he's heading towards the cross. This is how the evening started. Verse 3 of chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. He starts to wash the disciples' feet. From washing their feet, he turns that into a lesson. He starts to teach them. That's where all this whole evening begins right here. Jesus washes their feet. Now, what what prompted it? What started this? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Jesus knowing I've come from the Father. Jesus knowing I'm going to the Father. It was Jesus what set Jesus free to serve, to do what he was called to do, to take those necessary steps, to fulfill the calling of his, on his life. It started with him knowing, here's what God has put on the inside of me. Here's what God has given me. Here's who I am in God. Here's where I come from. Here's where I'm going. It was Jesus knowing who he was. That's what launched him or set him free that evening that moved him to be able to do what he did and, and set his disciples on the course that they were to walk as well. You and I knowing who we are, you knowing what God has put on the inside of you, how he's anointed you with his Holy Spirit, how he's called you and chosen you, how you're special to him, that you're from him and you're going to knowing that is what helps launch you and set you free to be who God's called you to be and do, who, do what God's called you to do. But if the enemy can bring confusion and doubt and scramble that up, it, it limits you. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.